three, two, one. Hello and thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus for the past couple of weeks and the uh, the reason for that is um, I manage a couple of other podcasts. Uh, one for the VFRL, which is the Veterans for Responsible Leadership. That's a national organization and I host their podcast. I also host a podcast for the Big Sandy Heritage Center Museum uh, here in Pikeville where I live. So I've, I've spent a little bit of time um, working on those other podcasts and I didn't have as much time to do this one. Um, as I wanted to, I wanted to keep doing this one, but I had to take a little bit of time off and focus on those. So I wanted to get back into the saddle a little bit this week. And there's been a lot of things that have happened uh, in the in the past just the past few weeks that I wanted to talk about. And but I wanted to start. Um, there's a very interesting um, in the Lexington Herald Leader yesterday. There was a, a letter to the editor that was published, and I wanted to focus on that to start with because I think it's it's a relevant. Um, issue and I, I pull it up here on the screen if I can get rid of these pop-up ads that keep coming up so that I can actually read it. Um, uh, an individual, let me see if I can find their name here. I, I don't know this person. This was just someone who, who wrote uh, into the Herald Leader. Uh, this individual is Mr. Robert Adams from Lexington, but the, the, the piece that he wrote was entitled America Last and what he wrote was, quote, while Eastern Kentuckians live in dire conditions in tents and travel trailers, FEMA requires displaced American citizens to jump through bureaucratic hoops and administrative red tape. At the same time, billions are being pumped into Ukraine without oversight or congressional review. Ukraine got their money in 24 hours without snags. A foreign government where the U.S. has no vital interest takes priority over citizens genuinely suffering the devastation of Mother Nature's wrath. End quote. Okay, so I think it's a fair question to ask. Um, why folks in, in why the, the nation of Ukraine gets, gets a significant amount of U.S. taxpayer dollars faster, uh, while at the same time folks here in Eastern Kentucky did not receive any. Uh, just a couple of points, though, about that comment. I, I think he's wrong to say that there's no interest, uh, no vital interest in at what's at stake in Ukraine. Uh, there certainly is, but that's a separate discussion. Uh, the point that he raises about why are, are they getting assistance before people in eastern Kentucky is a valid one. And that's the one that I, I wanted to focus on. You know, the state of Kentucky recently passed a relief package for the flood victims uh, in eastern Kentucky counties that were affected by the devastating flooding that took place in July of 2022. And that relief package totaled uh, $213 million, some of which was taken from the state's own rainy day fund, which... Uh, without irony or without trying to be ironic, obviously it, it doesn't get much more rainy than the floods that we experienced in July. So it was, it was quite appropriate that those um, those funds were earmarked for relief efforts for the people who suffered um, from flood damage, the, the devastation that took place here in, in eastern Kentucky. And uh, I'm sure, as many state legislators have indicated, and, and this is from both political parties, that was just a first step from the state perspective. So it's, it's likely that there will be other state uh, relief efforts that will follow 
um, the one that was passed, I think, in August. So there will be subsequent relief efforts coming from the state level to help folks in eastern Kentucky who suffered from the uh, the flooding, which were historic, by the way. Um, they did exceed even the, the level of da- in some places exceeded even the level of damage that occurred in the 57 flood, which prior to 2022, the 57 flood was sort of the benchmark uh, for the highest wa- the highest water, the most flood damage that the region has ever uh, suffered. You know, of course, Eastern Kentucky has suffered many other floods. There was a flood in, 80, in 77, there was a flood in 84. I mean, there's been many others throughout the, the region's history. And, um, but the 57 one was usually the benchmark for the most damage or the highest water flows that were seen in some places. And the 2022 flooding exceeded that. Um, I'll give you just one example. You know, the Whitesburg flood there, the Kentucky River crested far above the level that was recorded uh, in 1957. And so subsequently, the damage uh, was even more extensive and greater. And so we know there was a state relief package for for the flood victims, but what about the federal government? Well, they set FEMA, which is all well and good, because it is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So it kind of makes sense that you would send FEMA. But FEMA has a very limited mandate when it comes to helping individuals who were affected by uh, events like the flood. Uh, it's it's not an agency that's designed to help people get a new home. That's not FEMA's purpose. So so the arguments about whether or not FEMA's working or we need to fix FEMA, well, those are good discussions, and, and there probably is a lot of things that need to be fixed at FEMA. But the bottom line is its mission was never to replace people's homes or to help them rebuild their lives after suffering total loss in a flood like the the ones Eastern Kentucky saw. FEMA, their purpose is to help folks get through a few weeks of emergency uh, you know, living by providing emergency services just to sustain them until the, the immediate crisis has passed. So that's FEMA's purpose. It was never to get somebody a new home or never to replace what was lost. And so my question is, and I hope folks that are listening will think about this, why wasn't there a federal relief package for Eastern Kentucky after the flooding? Why didn't our congressional delegation even propose one? Our local congressmen didn't. Our senators didn't. I don't know why they didn't. I can't speak for someone else. I can't speak for them, and I'm not going to try to. But I hope folks that are listening will will write them or contact them or ask them to explain why they thought that the state government of Kentucky felt like it was necessary to earmark you know, almost a quarter of a billion dollars of relief money to eastern Kentucky, and the federal government decided that they were going to earmark zero. Why is that? It would have been a simple matter for our congressional delegation, to create and put through Congress a a relief package for Eastern Kentucky. You could have called it the Emergency Insurance Act because a lot of people who lost homes here in Eastern Kentucky did not have flood insurance. And it's no secret why, because a lot of folks who who suffered the flood damage or lost lost their homes and lost everything can't afford to pay for insurance. They're on a, a fixed income and that's just one more expense that they could not afford. So they didn't have flood insurance because they couldn't afford it. Well, why couldn't the federal government step in and offer a relief package? And and it wouldn't have to be big. You could even just say, you could even let it match. Just match the state level. Like, okay, the state of Kentucky thinks that $213 million is needed. So the federal government's going to match that. And we're going to create the 2022 Emergency Insurance Act. And what that does is it retroactively gives insurance to folks who lost homes in the flooding. And they can apply directly to that pool of money that's passed by the federal government 
and that will give them actual an actual amount that they can use to replace what they lost because FEMA can't do that. It never could. That that's not the answer. And so I'm I'm sort of mystified as to why our congressional delegation did not do that. If they did, and I just I just don't know about it. I'll admit I'm wrong, but I don't think they did. And so. I would love to hear uh, an explanation from them as to why they didn't think Eastern Kentucky merited a, a relief package when the state government of Kentucky clearly did, when other places in the United States that have suffered similar levels of damage from flooding have received relief packages from the federal government. So why didn't Eastern Kentucky? I, I hope that's something that, um, that folks will ask uh, their congressional rep or their senator at the federal level. Because I think they owe us an explanation. Uh, they should have to defend that. They should have to justify their decision. Because I think it was the wrong decision, and it was a bad one. And clearly, the people of eastern Kentucky and the region merited a federal relief package to match at least what the state offered. Because the need is that great. And it's going to take years to keep on doing the cleanup and repair. I, I've seen it up close. I've, I've volunteered to do cleanup and repair work in Whitesburg only a couple of weeks after the flood had hit. So, I mean, I've seen up close... The devastation. I've been in homes that were flooded, um, and you have to almost replace everything from from the watermark down, which in some cases is you know four feet high on the wall. Everything underneath that has to be replaced. So the sheetrock has to be pulled out, the subfloor has to be pulled out, all of that has to be ripped out and replaced. Um, and those are the lucky ones whose whose homes structurally survived. There were some whose whose homes didn't survive at all, so they had to be completely replaced. And, and that's going to take a long time. And so there are communities that are still suffering. There are people that are still living in tents. And, and to, to Mr. Adams from Lexington, yes, sir, that is a legitimate question to ask why the federal government did not do anything or did not do more than they did to help them. So fair question on that. And I hope our congressional reps can, can give you an answer because they owe you one and they owe the people of Eastern Kentucky one. I do think you're wrong, though, about... Uh, you, the United States having no vital interest in what takes place in Ukraine. Um, I think that's very wrong. You can argue that maybe we shouldn't be sending as much money to Ukraine as we are. That's, a, that's an arguable proposition, and I'd be happy to have that discussion. But there's certainly an interest there, because the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as I've mentioned in, in previous shows, you know, that's, that's the single largest land invasion in Europe since the end of the Second World War. So it is significant. It is on the doorstep of our allies in Europe, specifically Poland in the, in the east of Europe, which borders Ukraine, which has a very large border with Ukraine, and, and now Finland, which has joined NATO due to the Russian invasion. And which, by the way, that should be kind of a clue. You know, when, when Sweden and Finland want to get involved, you know, especially the, the, the Swedes and, and countries that have been neutral for, for decades, when they have almost overnight changed their opinion, it's because they recognize the significance and the gravity of the invasion of Ukraine that the Russian attack represents. It is a threat. It does affect America's vital interest, and it is something that we are stakeholders in. So I know there's a we have our own problems here at home, and the floods in eastern Kentucky are just one of them. We absolutely do. There's no argument there. We do have problems here at home that need to focus on. But we cannot just stick our heads in the sand and pretend that what goes on overseas doesn't affect us because it does. Whether we want it to or not, whether we like it or not, what goes on abroad has an impact on our life here in the United States. And when we ignore that, as history has clearly shown, when we ignore that, we end up just dealing with it much later when the situation is much worse. And that is the, the situation, that's the, the point I'm trying to make about Ukraine, 
is that you've got a Russian president who doesn't want to reestablish the Soviet Union. He wants to reestablish the Russian Empire that existed before the Soviet Union. He wants to go back to the time of the Tsars. He wants to rebuild the Russian Empire so that it controls pretty much most of Central Asia. And Ukraine is a piece of that puzzle and a step in that direction. It's not the first military action that Russia has taken under the leadership of Vladimir Putin. They have attacked Georgia and Ossetia. They have attacked Chechnya and now Ukraine. They also continue to exert significant influence in other former Soviet satellites. I'll cite as an example Kazakhstan, where the Russian-backed security forces are what keeps their current rulers in power. And they do that because the current ruler takes their orders from Moscow. They do. They take their orders from Moscow. And so this is how the Kremlin wants it. They want the former Soviet satellites obeying their orders. Now, Russia has legitimate security interests in its frontier. It always has. Attacks uh, into Russia twice in, in the past 200 years have come from Europe, once from Napoleon, a second time from Hitler. And so Russia has a case when they say, we have a security interest in our frontier. They're, they're telling the truth. They do. But they're not telling the truth when they claim that Ukraine has always been a part of Russia, doesn't exist as an independent nation, and is currently being occupied by neo-Nazis. None of that is true. None of that is accurate. And yet those pretexts were used to justify the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is now on NATO's doorstep. And as I've mentioned before, the NATO countries, including Poland, came to our defense after 9-11 and they've sent military forces from their own country to aid our operations when we were working or when we were deployed to Afghanistan and to fly missions protecting the continental United States here at home. And I worked with some of them when I was with the 552nd Air Control Wing out at Tinker. We were flying missions as part of Operation Noble Eagle which was the first operation we launched in defense of the United States after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And our allies from the NATO countries, including Poland, sent officers to help fly those missions. So they came to our defense. So we owe them. We are treaty-bound to come to their defense should Russia attack Poland. And they've come close to doing that already. Russian rockets and missiles have landed at targets in Ukraine less than 30 miles from the easternmost Polish border. So if there, would, if there is going to be a Russian attack on a NATO country, the most likely candidate, in my opinion, is Poland. Because it borders Ukraine and because we are sending weapons, material, and supplies on the ground through Poland into Ukraine. And so if Russia decides that that is a sufficient reason for them to, to attack Poland to stop the flow of, of uh, military supplies to the Ukrainian forces, I think that's the most likely target. And if they did that, it would trigger Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which would require, legally, the United States to come to Poland's defense. And in that scenario, you would have a de facto, not a de facto, an actual state of war between the United States and Russia. That is not the case right now. There is not a direct conflict between the United States and Russia. There is definitely an indirect conflict as we are sending arms and supplies to Ukraine to support the Ukrainian forces, which, by the way, have gained operational momentum in portions of the easternmost parts of that country and are retaking land that was previously taken by the Russian forces. And so we are indirectly involved in that conflict 
because we're sending them arms and supplies. Expect that to change. You know, territory can change hands a bunch of times. Taking land is one thing. Holding territory is quite something else. And so that the Russians are finding that out. And it's quite possible that Ukrainian forces could retake a town and that six months from now, Russian forces will take it back. And then next year, the Ukrainian forces take it back. That could go on for a long period of time. It really could. So I would caution against reading too much into the changing hands of territories in the Ukrainian theater. Um, the Russians made that mistake at the outset by claiming they, they were winning simply because they had control of territory and now they're losing some of that. And so I would caution our Ukrainian friends not to, not to make the same error in judgment by thinking that they have victory just because they've retaken a few towns or a few sections. Um, that, that could go on for a long period of time. So anyway, we clearly do have a vital interest in Ukraine. We do. And so I, I think that back to the outset there, I think our, um, our opinion piece in the Herald Leader was wrong about that. Uh, but they're not wrong to cite that we, we should be giving uh, assistance, federal assistance to the flood victims um, in eastern Kentucky who definitely deserve it and unquestionably need it based on the level of destruction that has taken place. One other thing I think that's, that was interesting that's happened in the world since, um, since I did my last show, which has been a few weeks, um, protests have flared up in Iran over uh, a young woman who was killed or died while in the custody of the, uh, the religious police because she wasn't uh, adhering to the very strict dress and appearance standards um, that those individuals um, enforce on a daily basis on Iranians. And the anger in Iran is clear that the, at least the younger generation doesn't like the, the, severe, the severe religious rule that the current regime is imposing. Now, Iran's president blames the protests on the United States, which is absurd. We would love to take credit. <laughs> I would love it if we could take credit for the protests currently um, happening in Iran, but they are absolutely 100% homegrown. Not us. We had nothing to do with it. We wish, um, but we didn't. We had nothing to do with it. This is the Iranian people expressing their anger at a corrupt and repressive regime in Iran. And the Iranian leaders are well aware of their own history. You know, the current theocracy in Iran came to power through a violent revolution that started in the streets. And so I think they're pretty aware that they could go out the same way. Um, and if the current Iranian regime were to collapse, I think that's the most likely scenario. That's the most likely way that it would happen. It would happen just like it, it did in the late 70s. So I think they could go out the same way they came in uh, via a, a popular uprising that turned violent. And, um, what, you know, Iran's been through lots of protests before. We've seen this a number of times, even in the past decade. We've seen protests flare up. The government cracks down and then they die out. So it's also certainly possible that that will be the case again and that the protests will simply uh, die out after a while and, and the regime will go right on uh, being repressive and uh, corrupt and, and doing what it's uh, already doing uh, in Iran. If you want to understand how that regime works, there's a, an absolutely fantastic book and it's called Honeymoon in Tehran by Asadeh Muavani. And she is an Iranian-American. And I actually read this book, oh, it's been a while, probably, I think back, I think I read it in either 2000 or 2001. Um, and I remember it because I used to have, at that time I was active duty uh, in the Air Force, as I said, I was stationed out in uh, Tinker in Oklahoma City. But 
my wife was stationed up in Enid at Vance Air Force Base, and so we bought a house in the middle in a little town called Kingfisher. Well, that's a long ways from Oklahoma City. If you ever looked at a map or you ever driven it, it's a solid hour of driving, sometimes a little bit more, to get from Kingfisher to uh, Tinker Air Force Base. So I, I had a long commute. Like for, for a couple of years there when we were doing that, I had a daily commute, which was one hour each way. And I was, you know, young in, in my mid-20s, so it wasn't that big of a deal. I could handle it then. Point being, while I was on that drive, you know, an hour is a long time to be in the car, I frequently used to buy audiobooks. And at that time, they came on, you know, the, the, the CDs, the compact discs. And so one of the earliest ones that I bought was Honeymoon in Tehran. And I remember many days when I would be driving back and forth to work, uh, listening to that, um, to that book. And it just stuck with me because it, it's, it's such a good description. It gives you so many insights into the character and the quality of the Iranian society. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. I remember the author's account of, uh, by giving an example of how the, the ruling uh, religious rulers are viewed by ordinary Iranians. And, and she wrote that um, the corrupt or the, you know, the lustful mullah, which is a, a religious leader in, in Iran that uses their position to take advantage of women because there, if you commit sexual assault or rape, um, it's expected that the woman will keep quiet. And if she speaks up, then she's the one that's ostracized. And so they use that to get away with a lot of crime. And so Asadeh Muavani wrote that the, uh, the lustful mullah is an icon of Persian literature in much the same way that the corrupt sheriff is an icon of American literature from, from the Old West. And so just to give you that sort of glimpse, it's a, it's a great book. I'd really recommend reading it. Um, and it gives you some, some really good insights into what's, how Iranian society works, how their government works, and how the people view that. Um, and underneath it is a people who do not want to be um, ruled by... Um, by religious rulers. And, and another quote that she mentioned was that uh, this is from a, a woman in Tehran who said, quote, you know, there is no Islam anymore. These mullahs have ruined it. And so to think that we, when we look at this from a distance, you know, we see Iran, we see a theocracy, we think everyone there must be uh, supportive of the regime or a religious fanatic themselves. That's nothing could be further from the truth. Iran prior to the onset of the, uh, the revolution in the late 70s was a very cosmopolitan type of place, especially in Tehran. Uh, you would not have found um, women dressed in head to toe um, the way you would uh, under an Islamic regime. That was not the case. It would have looked very much like a, a European capital in terms of, of dress and, and the way people behaved. And so the Islamists wanted to put a stop to that, which they, they have since the time of their regime. But underneath that is a, a, a Iranian people, especially the young people in Iran, who very much resent being ruled by corrupt religious leaders who, who frequently don't obey the own, their own religious edicts, but they force it on the people. And so we'll see what happens in Iran. I think it's, it's interesting that the, um, the protests have flared up again after, after someone died in the custody of the religious police. Um, the morality police, I think, is what they're technically called. Um, and, and what could be more immoral than a morality police, right? What could be what could be more unjust than a group of people who decide that they're going to impose morality on everybody else by force? Um, and so, for for folks in uh, there aren't many people in America who would want something like that. There are some. I would call it a handful of the, the most far right and extreme. Uh, right religious conservatives might see the value in something like that. It's certainly not mainstream here in America. 
But for those who would support that, uh, I would tell you that there's there's simply no, there are few things that are more immoral than uh, morality police. And the Iranian regime is finding out that a great number of the Iranian people agree with me on that. And so we'll see what happens there. I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I guess I guess really I suspect that I, I expect it to, to go the same way that the past protested. There was some I think in 2009, and in before that I, I think you'll see widespread social unrest for for a few weeks. And the regime will crack down, and then it'll just sputter out, and then things will go back to the way they were. So I guess I guess that's kind of what I expect to see happening um, in Iran. And so we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see there um, as to how that uh, turns out. As far as the situation in Ukraine goes, there's been a change recently, as I talked about earlier. I don't know how that's going to turn out. With the Russian call-up of, uh, of their reserves and mobilization, that's a significant escalation. I meant to mention that. And also the, um, the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, that's a significant event. Uh, the pipeline, which, which is used to carry uh, liquid natural gas from Russia to Europe, uh, of course, Europe depends on or has in the past depended on Russian suppliers for cheap energy. And now that's been at least temporarily disrupted. You know, the pipeline didn't have any, wasn't transporting gas when it was, when it was attacked. Um, and we still don't know who did that or why. And so really all we can do is speculate on that. You know, the, the, the explosive devices that were triggered went off um, 200 feet at the bottom of the sea where there's, you know, nobody was around to see it, so there weren't many eyewitnesses. And so hard facts are, are a little um, in short supply right now. If any national government out there has intelligence information on what happened, they're not sharing it. Um, unsurprisingly, we've had, you know, trading accusations between uh, you know, the United States blames Russia. Russia blames the United States. Uh, haven't heard, you know, Europe tends to think that it was the Russians. Um, and then people ask, well, why would the Russians do it? Why would they cut off their own uh, oil, their own gas supply to Europe? It just hurts them, so it doesn't make any sense. Maybe. Maybe that's true. Um, it's also true that um, Mr. Putin has domestic enemies. And if you were a domestic, so I'm just going to speculate, pure specu warning, pure speculation is following. I don't have any facts to back this up. This is just my opinion on that situation. But, you know, if you're a domestic enemy of Vladimir Putin, which he has, and you wanted to get rid of him, the first thing you would do is put a new guy in power after he was gone. The second thing you would do was flip the switch and turn the gas back on to Europe and get ridiculously rich from, from selling it. And now that option has been taken away, at least in large part, by the, the uh, damage to the Nord Stream pipeline. So I think it's possible, at least, that Russia was behind it, but the message wasn't intended for us. It was intended for Putin's enemies at home. So we always tend to forget that, that uh, politics is a double-edged game. There's the international version and there's the domestic version. So I would argue that it's at least possible, if not plausible, that that was done by Russian forces for a domestic purpose, and that is to prevent a domestic enemy from attempting to, to forcibly remove Mr. Putin from power because now they won't be able to just flip the switch and, and make easy money by selling gas that they would have been from the Nord Stream pipeline. And so that's been taken away from him. That's all just speculation. I don't have a, a single solitary hard fact to back that up. Uh, and I look forward to seeing, hopefully, uh, the emergence of some hard facts to establish what actually happened because it is significant. It is an escalation, just like the... Uh, the calling up of Russian reservists, um, that adds a new dimension to the conflict. Whether or not those reservists will have an impact on the, uh, on the ground in Ukraine remains to be seen. Um, it's hard to see how the, the, the uh, surging in untrained recruits is really going to do much of anything for, for the Russians. But we have to remember 
they fought wars that way in the past, um, and sometimes it worked out for them. Sometimes it didn't. I don't know yet which way um, this time is going to be. So that's a situation that we'll continue to watch. But of course, you know, the threats made by Russian President Putin for nuclear war can't be ignored. It's a significant threat. It's a credible threat. And it's one we have to, to think about, which is, of course, what he wants. It's one we have to think about when we decide the next, the next steps we take uh, from a policy perspective uh, in that theater with regards to the, uh, the situation in Ukraine. Of course, the world is, is actually less prepared for a nuclear war now than they were, say, in the 1950s. You know, back in that time period, you had a majority of people who were homeowners, who had, you know, basements full of canned goods with radios and batteries. And at least, and the government spent a lot of time and effort, our government did, telling American citizens what they should do if there was a nuclear attack. So we, we, were, we had a degree of readiness um, for a nuclear war. I don't think we have that same degree of readiness today. You know, now we have a lot of people who, who, who rent they don't own homes. We have a lot of people who live on, who spend a majority of their um, their food income on on takeout or delivery groceries. They don't have basements full of canned goods. Now they order out. Um, so I would argue that our capacity to withstand a nuclear attack or to survive after one is less today than it was during the Cold War, or at least during the early phases of the Cold War. And yet the threat is just as high, if not higher because there are new elements that have been added, uh, including stealth platforms, which we have and maybe Russia has, that could increase suspicion. And so with an active shooting war in, in Ukraine between Russian and Ukrainian forces who are getting supplies from us, um, so I think the threat of nuclear war is slightly higher than it was during most of the Cold War, and our readiness for it is, is lower. So the threat is, is more severe today than it, than it would have been, say, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And we need to take that into account. I don't think uh, the Russian president or their leaders are suicidal. I do think they're well aware that the use of nuclear weapons would trigger a, a severe, if not potentially a nuclear response from the United States and NATO. I don't think they're suicidal. And so I think that this is mostly a threat to keep us off balance um, and to keep us... Uh, to make us slower to react, to react to the situation in Ukraine. So I think the Russian government is using the threat of nuclear weapons to protect their conventional forces and to throw us uh, off balance from a, a political perspective. So I, I think that's the main purpose. Of course, there is a chance they might really do it, but I think that chance is, is rather low based on the facts that we know about the Russian regime and the situation um, in Ukraine. And of course, meanwhile, back here in eastern Kentucky, um, as I said at the opening, folks continue to rebuild uh, from the flood damage. I'm sure there will be another relief package coming from the General Assembly when they meet in January, and I hope that's the case. I hope that the federal government will also join in in sending an Emergency Insurance Act or a relief package to Eastern Kentucky to at least match what the state government has offered because the need is that great and the devastation is that extensive. And there are folks who, who desperately need the help that aren't getting it. I know there's a lot of private organizations that have come in to help. They've done a lot of good. I'm thankful for them, as I'm sure folks who live here are. But it's not enough, and the need is still significant. And so I hope the federal government will join in and do that and provide a relief package for the flood victims here in eastern Kentucky. And I hope folks listening will write their congressional rep or their senator federal and tell them that that is necessary and that we should do that. 
and that, that time is of the essence. You know, every day that goes by without that assistance being rendered, people are suffering who might not have to if that assistance were provided. So those, those are the things I just wanted to talk about today. Um, I know there's other events that have gone on in the world. I, I don't want to try to cover them all in one, uh, in one podcast or try to catch up in the, uh, the coming weeks. But uh, that was it for the day. I, I appreciate everybody listening. Hope you have a great day and uh, take care. Yeah,